I solemnly pledge myself before God, and in the presence of this assembly, to pass my life in purity and to practice my profession faithfully. I will abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous, and will not take or knowingly administer any harmful drug. The Florence Nightingale Pledge Boston, Massachusetts, October 31st, 1889. It was a dark and stormy night. Jane Toppin sat alone in a chair in the Victorian operating theater of the prestigious Massachusetts General Hospital, where she was a nurse. Shreds of flesh, guts, and dried blood stuck to her uniform. She watched in morbid fascination as several rats in the corner of the room nibbled on a bleeding vertebra from the last show. Jane stroked a human skull that had been given to the hospital by the body snatchers. Surgeons would meet the grave robbers at back doors and alleyways to buy the stolen corpses in the wee hours of the night. The anatomical theater, which was lit only by the amber glow of candlelight, might have seemed grotesque to the uninitiated, seeing as it had the wretched odor of rotting flesh and death, which those in the profession cheerfully referred to as the good old hospital stink. The public thought of the dissection chamber as the dead house of dread. But for Jane Toppin, it was where she could be her true self. This was more than an ordinary clinical detachment to death. Death brought Jane great joy and perverse satisfaction. Those who saw her true face never lived to talk about it. On a table next to her was the corpse of an elderly man, who was scheduled to be dissected in front of a crowd of medical students and anatomists. He had died in her care under suspicious circumstances. Jane didn't seem worried if the hospital staff suspected her. In the Victorian era, patients died in the care of their doctors or nurses all the time. Victorian hospitals were dirty places riddled with disease. Those who underwent a medical procedure did so as a last resort, and all too few of those who went under the surgeon's knife ever woke up. Then, as now, the business of hospitals was business. Most hospitals, especially the highly distinguished ones, were more concerned with the reputation. The hospitals turned a blind eye to those who wanted to get away with murder. The autopsies that were performed at the surgical theater were a form of macabre entertainment, a grisly drama performed with surgery, gore, nudity, and death all part of the act. The autopsy show wasn't scheduled for another hour, so the exquisite cadaver was all hers for now. Jane got up went to the doors of the medical bay and locked them. The time had come. Jane walked over to the body, laying on the table. She smiled softly and kissed the corpse's cheek. As she stared at the body laying on the slab, she got a powerful, erotic charge from holding and caressing it. She felt intoxicated, reliving the violent delights she experienced holding the dying victim in her embrace. She slowly removed her nursing uniform in front of the dead and stood naked and uninhibited, quietly reciting the Lord's Prayer. The stout brunette would never be mistaken for Florence Nightingale. She lifted the frail corpse into her arms and began to waltz around the surgical theater with the lifeless cadaver and a ghoulish dance macabre. Contrary to folklore and common belief, rigor mortis is not permanent and begins to pass within hours of onset. 
as she danced with the corpse. A piece of dark, beautiful music played in Jane Toppin's twisted mind. She twirled and spun around the room with a stiff, orgasming as a symphony of madness reached an orchestral crescendo in her head. Life is a dance, and all the world's a stage. But there is one last dance, the dance of death. Death was the only thing that made Jane Toppin feel alive. Spooky? Do you think I'm spooky? I told my mom I thought I saw a werewolf. And my mom believed me. Oh, like I'm putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay! Serious crap! You think these people were eaten? My dog stepped on a bee. Unidentified flying objects. I think that fits the description pretty well. Haunted human remains. He's dead. But he has the power to move and kill. She was bludgeoned to death with an axe. <laughs> A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. When I stand on the mountain and I say, do it, it gets done. If it don't get done, then I'll move on it. And that's the last thing in the world you want me to And this is the Spookies Podcast. <laughs> Trick-or-treat, motherfuckers. Hello, all you cool cats and kittens, and welcome to the Spookies Podcast, a podcast of horrors, both real and imagined. I am your host, Stephanie. And this is Michael. First off, we want to apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. We had some technical difficulties. Stephanie's mic decided it didn't like her anymore and (laughs) blew up. Uh, The script for this pod went through numerous rewrites. I had some side effects from getting my COVID booster shot. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy theory time. (laughs) Stephanie has been sick. Yep. The chronic illness strikes again. It has just been one thing after another. Mm -hmm. And eventually we're going to have to do a pod on how cursed the production of this season has been. (laughs) We're talking the Poltergeist franchise level curse. Right. Honestly, I'm beginning to suspect one of the trolls is using Hexcraft on us. (laughs) Probably some wokester from Twitter. (laughs) Stephanie, did you know that if you watch a movie or a TV show where bad things happen, you also support bad things? (laughs) Depiction is endorsement. It's just logic. I I guess. Is that true? True crime is under attack, again, from the postmodern religious right, a.k.a. woke Twitter, the secular religion. They are so tiresome. Because, you know, if we just close our eyes and pretend serial killers don't exist, no one will ever murder again. And I don't know if that's true, but it feels true to woke Twitter. Their feelings are fact. Science is patriarchy. No, that's this podcast. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves a moral panic. Again. Children, Stephanie. We are all being treated like children, infantilized to the point of absurdity. I swear online discourse has become QAnon for liberals. It has. 
Mm-hmm. I hope one day we can return to the 90s. <laughs> the 1890s? No, the 1990s. The last <laughs> decade where people had common sense and lived in a shared reality. Wasn't that the Tipper Gore decade? Still was better than this decade. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, that was Al Gore's now divorced wife. And she was like hardcore censoring the fuck out of TV shows, movies, and games, and uh, music albums. I just want to know what she thinks about Hocus Pocus 2. <laughs> she like the, the crazy Christer in Texas who's like, you know, they can just, the witches can come through TV and come through the TV. They literally pick the lamest movie to get outraged over. Right. Her name is Gooch. Something Gooch. That's her name. Which sounds like a word for vagina. <laughs> It rhymes with cooch. Your gooch. <laughs> well, Stephanie, we have a problematic murder show to do. Excellent. Souls to corrupt. Yes. Minds to warp. Ah. Okay, Steph. Pop quiz. What's scarier than Dr. Oz? <laughs> More terrifying than Dr. Kevorkian. A nurse who wants to play God over life and death. Tonight's case is about a true feminist icon, a woman from the Victorian era who broke all the rules. You will never hear about this woman <laughs> from the Huffington Post or Teen Vogue. They do not want you to know she exists. We're supposed to just forget she ever existed. Mm-hmm. Erase her. Mm-hmm. This is the story of Jane Toppin, the nurse who was death. A woman some believe was America's first serial killer. No, that was Christopher Columbus. Uh, he was a genocidal maniac. Serial killer. <laughs> There is a reason we have no female Jack the Ripper, and it isn't for lack of qualified candidates. Jolly Jane was a Victorian serial killer whose tally of victims was five times higher than Jack the Ripper. Jane is the second scariest nurse I know after my ex. (laughs) Hello, Betsy. I thought this was the perfect case for spooky season. Uh, It was between Jolly Jane or that woman who killed her husband by giving him Gatorade mixed with antifreeze. Why antifreeze? Apparently, antifreeze tastes sweet. It's a perfect way to um, hide the poison. And antifreeze causes what is known as metabolic acidosis, a buildup of acid in the body. Antifreeze poisoning will start to affect multiple vital organs, including the kidneys, brain, lungs, and liver. Death usually occurs from organ failure and catastrophic brain damage. Do not get any ideas, Stephanie. (laughs) Do not poison me. Tonight is about the dark side of feminism. Nursing is the perfect profession for a predator to hide in plain sight. If we want to embrace men and women as equals, and we should, it is the 21st century. I know it doesn't seem that way, but it is. (laughs) And I know someone will call me woke just for saying that. And to anyone who does that, fuck off immediately. A succession, fuck off. Yeah. We have to acknowledge women can also be predators. Mm -hmm. They are not a unified hive mind. They are not just pronouns. They are not meaningless hashtags. They are unique individuals with their own individual interests and ideologies. We're people first. Yes. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. (laughs) Human beings. And human beings can be scary, just like the goat man. The goat man? Stephanie, you laugh. (laughs) But our Halloween episode this season is all about the murderous, axe-wielding goat man of Maryland. Oh, God. I have already written the opening. It is going to be an absolute banger of an episode. You know the beginning. I've told you this. I'm excited. (laughs) The opening is a total WTF moment. The Blue Lives Matter crowd is going to hate me. They're going to form petitions on the internet to get this podcast, which has, you know, nobody listens to. We get it banned. (laughs) 
And if you listen to that episode, it means you're a bad person who supports the goat man's toxic masculinity. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, even the goat man would lose custody of his kids in family court. So what about the dog man? Dog man has Johnny Depp's lawyers. Dog man will be fine. <laughs> In America, we have this common perception that the criminal behavior of women and the delinquent behavior of girls are not serious problems. Yet countless studies have shown that female criminal defendants are often treated better than their male counterparts. And this brings us to the subject of tonight's case, a ticking time bomb of a human being known as Jane Toppin, a woman many criminologists consider one of the most unusual and prolific serial killers in history. Historians of the macabre have often wondered how a serial murderer like Jane Toppin was able to get away for so long with killing her patients. There's something unexplainable here, and I don't want to spoil anything, but I have some theories. More on that when we get to the end. Anyway, can't wait for the biopic about her starring Lena Dunham. (laughs) So, boys and ghouls, gather around the campfire because Stephanie is about to tell us a scary story. A true story from a dark time in American history. This is the story of Jane Toppin, the nurse from hell. Boston, Massachusetts, 1863. The terror, which would last for over four decades, all began on a cold and rainy night when a troubled man named Peter Kelly showed up on the doorsteps of the Boston Female Asylum. But Peter hadn't arrived at the Boston Female Asylum seeking help. He had come to abandon his two young daughters, eight-year-old Delia Josephine and six-year-old Honora, to the Boston Female Asylum, an orphanage for wayward and mentally ill girls. Peter Kelly had a nickname, Kelly the Crack, as in Crackpot. He was described by those who knew him as an alcoholic, prone to violent outburst, and mentally unstable. His wife had died of consumption, and Peter had been on a downward spiral ever since. Many suspected Peter of having been abusive to his daughters. According to some witnesses, the girls were often seen walking around town wearing nothing but rags and covered in bruises. Kelly, a tailor, would eventually go completely insane and spent the rest of his life institutionalized after trying to stitch his own eyelids together on the job. Peter Kelly took his daughters to the asylum to dispose of them. He never saw his children again. We will never really know what happened to the girls during their time at the orphanage. All the records say is that they were rescued from a very miserable home. Unfortunately, both were rescued too late. Delia would fall into a life of alcoholism and prostitution before going mad and dying in squalor, while their elder sister Nellie, who was not committed to the orphanage, ended up in an insane asylum. They were the lucky ones. Something far worse would happen to Honora. The real purpose of the Boston Female Asylum was to provide slaves for the city's upper class. It was a splendid source of cheap labor. In 1864, the asylum placed Honora Kelly as an indentured servant in the home of Anne Toppin, when she was only eight years old. There, she was routinely abused by Anne while becoming extremely jealous of Anne's biological daughter, Elizabeth. Although she was never adopted, Honora Kelly was renamed Jane Toppin. Despite this, 
her new family made sure to let Jane know she was never really one of them. She never knew love, compassion, affection, or learned how to form empathy towards other human beings. Jane's foster mother tormented the girl, constantly verbally abusing Jane about her Irish heritage and instilled in her a sense of worthlessness. Jane grew to hate herself and her status in life. Anne Toppin believed in old-fashioned notions of corporal punishment, and Jane was never spared the rod. The beatings young Jane endured only intensified her sense of grievance and malignant narcissism. Whether intentional or not, Anne Toppin was building a monster. Jane was constantly being reminded of her outsider status, of her social inferiority. Jane was the product of Irish parents, and in the waspy world she inhabited, the Irish were considered less than human. Protestant Americans thought the Irish criminals and disease spreaders. Jane was also black Irish, a term used to refer to Irish people with black hair and dark eyes. One theory is that they are descendants of Spanish traders, or of the few sailors of the Spanish Armada who were shipwrecked on Ireland's west coast. But this is all just speculation. No one knows for certain. The Toppins passed Jane off as an Italian girl whose parents died at sea, because of the stigma associated with the Irish. Anne Toppin stripped Honora, slash Jane, of her entire identity, forcing her to change everything about herself. Jane displayed the classic symptoms of ethic and religious self-hatred, lying about her origins and voicing bigotry against the Irish and Catholics. This was a time in America where the Irish were called the N-word and were often nicknamed Negroes turned inside out. Jane was constantly shamed by her bigoted foster mother, who reminded the young girl that her status in life was low and no one would ever love her due to her Irish heritage. Jane developed a habit during her adolescence of pathetic, self-aggrandizing lies. Her father, she claimed, had sailed around the world. Her brother, she told anyone who would listen, had fought so heroically at Gettysburg that President Lincoln had awarded him a medal. Her sister was an aristocratic beauty who stole the heart of an English lord. Her lies drove people nuts. In high school, she used gossip and lies to pit people against each other spreading nasty rumors about classmates she either envied or hated. And when she was caught in her fabrications, she would destroy her accusers by telling malicious lies about them. She became a schoolroom snitch, ingratiating herself with her teachers by tattling on her misbehaving peers. Not that Jane herself was a profile in good behavior. In addition to being a pathological liar, she was a petty thief who stole whenever she got the chance. These are the traits of what would come to be known as conduct disorder a group of behavioral and emotional problems characterized by a callous disregard for others. If left untreated, conduct disorder can metastasize into full-blown psychopathy. When Jane turned 18, she was given $50 as payment for her years of work as an indentured servant, a glorified slave. It was the largest amount of money she would ever receive from her foster family. When Anne Toppin died a few years later, Jane was not included in the will, Everything went to her foster sister, Elizabeth. Though Jane had been legally emancipated from her life of indentured servitude, she continued to live at home until age 28, functioning in the same capacity as always, the master and servant dynamic. The only difference was that now she worked for her sister, Elizabeth. Elizabeth got married to a deacon named Ormel Brigham and lived the life of a fairy tale with her husband in the Toppin house, 
a luxurious Georgian mansion. Pretty little Elizabeth, who was everything Jane was not. She wasn't the abandoned daughter of a lunatic. She was the real daughter of a respected upper-class woman. Elizabeth wasn't an indentured servant. She was the girl all the men wanted, the real daughter, the queen of the House Toppin. The country had lived through the Civil War and now found itself in the midst of what historians refer to as the Gilded Age, an era where the rich got richer and the poor got poorer, especially in the Northeast. These were dark days for the working class, unhealthy and dangerous working conditions, monopolies, government and business corruption. It was survival of the fittest, and the wealthy were God's chosen elect. Although Elizabeth always treated Jane well, Jane resented Elizabeth because she was beautiful and admired. It was around this time that Jane became obsessed with the occult and romance novels, her loneliness causing her to become lost in the fantasy. The living arrangement between the two women became impossibly strained. No one knows for certain what happened. What is known is that Jane moved out in 1885. Job opportunities for women in the Victorian era were scarce. Unmarried mothers and their infants were considered an affront to morality, and they were demonized and ostracized, often by public relief as well as charitable institutions. Jane Toppin faced homelessness and poverty if she didn't find a job or a husband. Pushing 30, with no husband in sight, Jane contemplated suicide several times. She lusted for power and control. She was tired of acting out her darkest desires and fantasy. Jane Toppin, a woman who longed to do great harm to others, settled on a profession where she would have a frightening amount of power over two of the most vulnerable groups in society, the elderly and those in need of medical attention. And what power is more terrifying, more godlike, than that of holding a human life in your hands and watching that life drain from their eyes? Jane Toppin decided to become a nurse. The Victorian era was a time of contrast, poverty as well as prosperity, degrading manual labor as well as technological progress, and depravity as well as virtue. The world of 19th century medicine was a horrifying, gruesome affair, all screams, blood, and torture. Doctors and nurses were often more butcher than healer. Perhaps the most frightening thing of all is that anyone could be a doctor or nurse. Hospitals of that era were the perfect environment for a predator committed to nothing except her own morbid self-gratification. In 1885, Jane Toppin began training at Cambridge Hospital to become a nurse. There is no doubt that, in many respects, Jane Toppin had all the makings of a first-rate nurse. 
Having spent decades of her life as a slave, she could easily handle the grueling physical labor required of her. The patients loved her. She really seemed to care about them and their needs. Jane excelled at that. She had a kind, caring smile that radiated warmth and compassion. With her cheerful demeanor and winning bedside manner, Jane became a favorite among patients, who were charmed by the nurse's bubbly, outgoing personality, earning her the nickname Jolly Jane. A carefully crafted persona for a person that never really existed. There were warning signs from the beginning. Jane seemed to have a frightening contempt for the elderly. Once, during her training in Cambridge Hospital, she was overheard saying there was no use in keeping the elderly alive. She said it with a smile, and everyone thought she was joking. It was no joke. She was deadly serious. Jane, like most defective human beings, couldn't keep her worst impulses in check. She still liked to gossip and spread malicious lies about others, and celebrated the dismissal of students whose lives she ruined. She lied that the Tsar of Russia had offered her a nursing job, and resumed her old habit of stealing. Many of her fellow students grew to despise her. Cunning and manipulative, she acted as a toady to her instructors and the hospital higher-ups. As in high school, Jane had an uncanny ability to make a favorable impression on authority figures and the influential. Little did her supervisors know that Jane had a darker side, and her medical training only served to reinforce her twisted and malevolent impulses. It was around this time something else awoke in Jane, something depraved. One day, Jane and her fellow nurses were brought in to watch an autopsy being performed and take notes. As the pathologist began to dissect the cadaver and reveal its contents to the room, something dark stirred inside Jane, something ghoulish. Her classmates were repulsed by the post-mortem. Jane, on the other hand, was not. She became fascinated. She never missed an autopsy show after that. Jane Toppin later said that she derived sexual satisfaction from watching corpses being dissected, morbidly aroused by the sight of all the blood and viscera. Many believe that this experience is where Jane's obsession with death likely began. The process of death, how the body seemed to freeze in place, then slowly decay. The dead could never tell Jane what to do. Corpses had no authority over her. They were statues of rotting meat. Jane found the whole gruesome procedure a thing of macabre beauty. The power to control whether a person existed, Jane found intoxicating, irresistible. Jane Toppin would find satisfaction in life through death. It is highly possible that Jane suffered a form of erotophonophilia, sexual gratification from watching someone die. The hospital's administrators became concerned over Jane's growing fixation with autopsies. It seemed abnormal, and indeed it was, but over time they wrote it off as simply a quirk. No one had any idea what Jane was doing at the hospital late at night when no one was around. When no one else was around, Jane wandered down into the dark basement of the hospital where the morgue resided. There, Jane pursued her ghoulish research alone by candlelight. She would conduct secret experiments on rats she caught, 
testing the effects of poisons and toxins. She pursued her unethical research in private. One night, she even desecrated the corpse of a man by cutting out his eyes with the express purpose of capturing death itself. You see, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, many believed in the pseudoscientific myth that death resided in the eyes of the dead and dying. In later years, investigators found a journal she kept that documented her secret experiments, including the ones she had done on her unwitting patients involving poison. Jane had a treasure trove of drugs at her disposal. Morphine, strychnine, mercury, arsenic, and atropine, all of which were widely available. During her residency, while making her rounds in the dead of night, Nurse Toppin used her patients as guinea pigs in quote-unquote scientific experiments with morphine and atropine. She would alter their prescribed dosages to see what it did to their nervous systems. She mostly preyed upon the feeble, the weak, and the elderly. Some suffered, some died, and some were left permanently damaged. At first, she would falsify their charts or give them small doses of medicine to make them stay longer in the hospital. She would dose them with morphine to the brink of death, then save them at the last moment so she could marvel at her own godlike powers. It was a cycle of medical torture. And these were the patients she liked. If she disliked a patient, she turned into a cruel, remorseless killer. Nurse Toppin had spent years studying the properties of poison with a scholar's diligence. She used the full might of her training and the tools of her trade against her helpless and defenseless patients. She used her medical knowledge to kill with cold and methodical precision, undetected. It went like this. She would load them up with painkillers, usually morphine or atropine, then standing at the bedside of her victim to observe the effects. She liked to see the pupils of their eyes contract. It was her favorite part. Jane grew excited listening to their breathing grow loud and stertorous as a clammy sweat covered their faces. With a large enough dose, they would sink into a coma almost immediately and die a few hours later. Sometimes, they simply stopped breathing. She found it far more satisfying when their deaths were accompanied by horrifying, violent convulsions. For Jane, no voice has as much melody in it as the one crying for life. No eyes as bright as those about to become fixed and glassy. No face so beautiful as the one pulseless and cold. It is not known whether any sexual activity went on when her victims were in this state, but when Jane Toppin was asked after her arrest, she answered that she derived a sexual thrill from patients being near death, coming back to life, and then dying again. Toppin would administer a lethal drug cocktail to helpless patients she chose as her victims, lie in bed with them, and hold them close to her so she could watch the life drain from their eyes. One victim managed to see Jane's true face and lived to tell about it. Amelia Finney was a 36-year-old woman who had been confined to the hospital with a uterine ulcer. Her doctors had been treating her with silver nitrate, a powerful caustic agent. On the night of the procedure, Amelia lay tossing in her cot, writhing in agonizing pain, 
a burning sensation in her lower body making it impossible for her to sleep. All at once, through the fog of pain, she became aware of a presence in the room. A figure stood next to her bed, looming over her like a god. It was her night nurse, Jane Toppin, whose face, illuminated by the ghostly glow of the bedside oil lamp, wore a look of demented arousal. Amelia looked back at her and begged Nurse Toppin to send for a physician. There's no need for that, Nurse Toppin whispered softly. I have something to make you feel better, here. Bending, she slid an arm beneath Amelia's shoulders, raised her slightly from the pillow, and held a glass to her lips. Drink this. Desperate for anything to relieve the terrible pain, Amelia swallowed the bitter-tasting medicine. As soon as she drank the strange liquid, a numbness began to spread throughout her entire body. She felt herself subsiding into unconsciousness, slipping further and further and further away. Before she went totally unconscious, in what seemed at the time like a dream, she felt the bedsheet being pulled back heard the cracking of the cot frame, felt the mattress sag as someone slipped into the bed beside her. It was Nurse Toppin. She had crawled into bed with Amelia. Terrified, Amelia was paralyzed from the drug and could do nothing but watch as Nurse Toppin began caressing her and stroking her hair. She kissed Amelia all over her face and head and proceeded to fondle her. Jane whispered softly into Amelia's ear that everything would soon be all right. It would all be over soon. Very soon. As Amelia's breathing grew loud and dire from the drug, Nurse Toppin became more and more excited, shuddering with pleasure. At one point, she bent over the drugged woman and pried open her eyelids, peering intently at the pupils. Maybe it was the drugs. But Amelia could have sworn Nurse Toppin's face changed shape for a split second, morphing into a skull, the embodiment of death itself. Amelia could feel the other woman's breathing grow in intensity as Nurse Toppin examined her. She then tried to get Amelia to take another drink. Come, dear, drink just a little more. But Amelia managed to summon what little fragment of strength she had left, clench her lips, and twist her head to one side. Just then, something caused Jane Toppin to spring from the bed and flee the room like a wraith, as though alarmed by the unexpected approach of another person. The next morning, Amelia was aroused from a drug-induced sleep by another nurse. Amelia felt groggy, sick to her stomach, and it took her several hours to clear her head. She had an image of someone or something violating her, it was as if the thing had fed on her life force, draining her like a vampire. Amelia teared up. The dreadful experience the night before had been so traumatizing and bizarre that for years Amelia had convinced herself it was all a terrible dream. It wasn't until years later, when sweet, caring Nurse Toppin was finally exposed for the monster she really was, that Amelia Finney realized it had not been a dream and just how close she came to dying that night in October when Nurse Toppin came to her bed. Despite her addiction to killing her patients, the hospital staff at Cambridge either never suspected her or knew and never wanted her secret to get out. In fact, Jane was often praised for her skills as a nurse 
and Toppin was recommended for the distinguished Massachusetts General Hospital in 1889. She had gotten away with cold-blooded murder and now found herself being promoted. Jane was good enough at her job that initially she was on the fast track to promotion. However, this was a tighter ship than Cambridge had been, and she soon got a reputation for taking the credit that others were due. Her tampering with medical records was also detected much more often, though it was put down to incompetence and ambition rather than malice. Nobody suspected that she was still secretly torturing and murdering patients with science experiments. Toppin's time at Massachusetts General came to an end in 1890. She'd always been a controversial figure in the hospital, popular with the doctors for her competence, but hated by her fellow nurses. Jane was up to her usual tricks, suspected in a number of petty crimes, such as stealing petty cash and the theft of a patient's diamond ring. Brimming with arrogance and contempt for rules, Jane made the mistake of leaving the ward without permission and was summarily dismissed. Because of this, even though she had passed her final exam and qualified for her diploma, she did not receive a license to practice as a nurse. So Jane returned to Cambridge Hospital in a desperate attempt to attain her license there. Her desire to kill nearly caught up with her as an attempt to poison a trainee nurse named Maddie Davis was detected by one of the doctors. Another doctor noticed a tendency for convalescing patients to die in Toppin's care, though he blamed it on carelessness in administering medication rather than malice. It was enough to make him let the board know, though, and Jane's contract was terminated. Once again, she failed to receive her license. It is impossible to say how many she killed at the two hospitals. It is also impossible to know to what extent the hospital knew of her gruesome experiments. After being fired from two different hospitals, Jane decided to go freelance. She wasn't going to let a lack of nursing license stop her from pursuing her dreams, her darkest fantasies. Over the next eight years, Jane Toppin became one of the most successful private nurses in Boston and one of the most infamous and diabolical serial killers of the Victorian era. Well, my ass is never going to the hospital again after that. (laughs) Stephanie, you should be Jane Toppin for Halloween. Mm, No. That would be a good look for you. Psycho Victoria nurse, since it's your favorite era of history. Yes, but I do not have all of the accoutrements. I don't know what that means. It means corsets. It means expensive fucking corsets. Okay. So guys, this is just a taste of Jolly Jane. We are not done yet. Although we are done this week, but next week... The worst is yet to come. This is going to be a two-parter in order to do justice to this case. It's a tragic story of dark history. We are going to talk more about this next week, but there are really two monsters in the Victorian era, Jane Toppin and the sexist repression of the Victorian era itself. You are getting three episodes this month, after all. This two-parter in our Halloween episode about the legend of the goat man. (laughs) So I have a couple thoughts before we go. I hate old people. (laughs) 
and old people hate me. It's just science. It's like an open secret. I don't know why. I have no idea why. They really don't like him, though. Old people, especially <laughs> old white people, think I'm the devil. They're always giving you nasty looks. I don't. When I was <laughs> in college, some old guy walked up to me and said, why are you alive? What? <laughs> and I leaned in close to him and whispered, to annoy you. <laughs> and I said it like I was the demon from the exorcist, to annoy you. And yet... I have to say, stories of old people being abused or murdered really bothers me. Not as much as animal cruelty, which I consider to be a crime punishable by death. Yeah. But what Jane did to her elderly patients is beyond despicable. And whatever empathy I have for Jane fades when I think about her crimes. One of the unexplained aspects to this case is why Jane fixated so much on the eyes of her victim, specifically the pupils. She seemed to be obsessed with the human eyes. It almost seems like she believes she's stealing their souls when she crawls into bed with them. And it reminds me of Charles Albright, uh, who was a serial killer who murdered and surgically removed the eyes of his victims in the Dallas, Texas area during the early 90s. And I think he also made paintings of eyeballs. Oh, okay. Yeah. He died in prison of COVID, so. Yay. I mean, I, I, I would guess it has to do with her her other fixation, which is on the occult, which is very popular and kind of... Well, we talked about, or you talked about, uh, how they thought you could capture death in the eyes. Yeah, it was really, you know, the Victorian era was strange because there was a lot of repression, very puritanical beliefs, yet they would dabble in things like magic well it's the birth of spiritualism and the spiritualist movement right and you have occultists and you have all these you know fake uh psychics victorians were (laughs) naughty people behind closed (laughs) doors lots of lots of scams more scams than today snake oil salesman right a lot of that shit going on so i i think there was thomas edison oh very much (laughs) so yeah (laughs) so yeah you think that's why she was obsessed i i do because i think Maybe she thought she could transcend herself. Or was she trying to capture death? Probably. But what is what does that mean if you capture death? What is she trying to accomplish? We'll Power. never know. Power. Well, she definitely wanted control, and we'll talk about that more next week. Right. I mean, this is a child and then woman who didn't have any control. And in a society where you're not giving women really any power, I mean, they're not... We, we couldn't own things. We couldn't have bank accounts. It was all up to your male relatives in order we're, for you to have these things. We're going to talk more about this in the uh, Behind the Truth. Okay, Stephanie. Thank you all for listening. Next week, Jane's psychopathy reaches new heights in Jane Toppin Part 2, A Poisoned Mind. Plus, Michael and I are going to play armchair psychologist, which is always fun. If you want to know more about all the drama that went into the making of this episode, you can find it on our Patreon. We're also going to be dropping an exclusive episode this month on Patreon about that Army Hammer documentary, House of Hammer. We have thoughts. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Spookies podcast to keep this pod sustainable. And if Patreon isn't your thing, you can also help us out by telling your friends and family to check out this podcast. Make sure to subscribe where you get your favorite podcast and leave us some helpful five stars. It helps the show show up in the algorithms. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye.